So Lisa, recently I've been working with a client that has asked me to build out a anti-racist curriculum. And it's been pretty fun kind of pulling all those resources together. But one person in particular said, as we were building out this curriculum, they asked the question, how are you going to distinguish between DEI broadly and anti-racism specifically? And I started thinking about it. Oh my God, it, it, it was a good question. It was a really good question that I had to figure out how I was going to be specific and answer it. So mm. how, how might you approach that? I mean, maybe we need to flesh this out a bit, but it's, it is two different things, yeah. maybe overlapping, but two different things. I do think we should flesh it out a little bit because I, yeah, I think when folks are talking about education or training related to diversity, equity, and inclusion, it's kind of a broad stroke, right? Um, and so they're mm-hmm. not, I think they're they're lumping anti-racism in with that in the sense that, well, if we have a diversity educator come, anti-racism is going to be addressed when that's not necessarily the case. And I, you know, not with all. all these folks looking to hire professionals, have speakers, has have book clubs, educational opportunities, it's probably going to be a good thing for us to talk about to help people navigate that. All right. Well, let's dive in. I'm Dr. Shauna Payne-Gold, and I go by she, her, her pronouns. And I'm Dr. Lisa Ingefield, and I go by she, her, hers. Welcome to Unfazed, a podcast to disrupt your normal and challenge your brain to go the distance. So Lisa, we've tried to address this before (laughs) when it comes to uh, DEI professionals and what they probably need to know, things that they need to have in their tool belt, their skill sets and so forth. But this is a little bit of a different take on it because I think to your point in the intro, I think you're right in regards to DEI skill sets don't necessarily uh, presume that one also has anti-racism mm-hmm. skill sets and knowledge. Yeah. They, yeah. they, it's, it's like that Venn diagram, once again, that can overlap, but it's a matter of if it overlaps and to what degree. Right. Right. And I, um, I think that's probably true for other elements, right? If we say that diversity, equity, and inclusion is this large tent or large umbrella, then there are going to be numerous issues within that that your kind of quote unquote average diversity educator isn't necessarily going to be a specialist on. So Mm anti-racism being one of them, probably some dynamics of sexual harassment, maybe ableism. And so I think the question posed to you is really an important one for endurance sports organizations to think about if they're looking to continue the journey with training of their boards, of their members, those kinds of things, you know, defining what is it you actually want to have your members or board members walk away with. And that Mm. might help determine Mm. who or how they provide the education. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, look, I I think you're hitting something really important because usually if, whether it's performative or not, you know, we're not expecting people to be experts as they try to enlist experts to do the work. And at the very same time, I also don't want them pulling buzzwords from the air either. And that ends up being how they look for a DEI expert or consultant. So if you only know, for example, oh, I've kind of heard of bias and I've kind of heard of microaggression. So I'm just going to reach out to a DEI person and see if we can start there. 
when that may not be the big challenge at all. There may be other things that are big challenges like policies or procedures, or maybe uh, the organization has a history that needs to be uprooted and examined and, and readdressed. And so, you know, I think I think it would be better to walk in with humility as you're trying to get a DEI expert on board to say, shoot, I don't even know what we need. All I know is here's the symptoms, you know, very similarly to going to see a medical doctor. No, no I don't know what's necessarily the problem, but this is what I'm feeling. So this is what I'm feeling in the organization. Whereas, um, you know, let's say women are overtalked and that's one of your symptoms, or we don't have a lot of diversity in leadership or whatever those symptoms are. And then let the expert possibly describe what's needed. I think maybe we could start there better because, you know, I have to be clear that most organizations don't exactly know what they need. They just know what they're feeling in the organization. Mm. Okay. So what do you think then you have an organization that is on the anti-racism bandwagon? And I don't mean to sound trite, uh, not trite, um, flippant when I say that, but certainly mm-hmm. there has been a lot of, there have been a lot of organizations that have jumped on that since that word was, po- that phrase was popularized by Kendi. I mean, it's been around before then, but certainly kind of accelerated, I think, in the last couple of years. And so folks are talking about anti-racism. We want an anti-racist organization. Do you feel like that in some cases then, as an organization looking for education or training for their members, jumping forward to anti-racism is too advanced? Oh, now that that's interesting because there's there's kind of two schools of thought there because there's some folks um, who are <laughs> codified DEI experts that say we need DEI as the foundation and then we kind of um, crescendo into anti-racism, right? Whereas mm-hmm. the other camp of DEI experts are saying post George Floyd's murder, everything needs to have a framework of anti-racism in this country, in the United States. And so, you know, you got two groups of experts that don't necessarily agree on the answer to your question. Me personally, I think there needs to be a crescendo, personally, just because I do believe very strongly in anti-racism, but I also feel like it can be quantum physics to some organizations and groups if they don't have the fundamentals in place first. And so, you know, that's my take on it, but I'm also an educator. I'm jaded by how education Mm. works and how it's a a process over time. Um, But that's my take on it. But I I can see, and I could even uh, support and argue both sides of the point. So I I know where I land, but I do get it and understand it. So Lisa, for you and I, I I don't know if this really calls us to be flexible because depending on the organization that may reach out to us, whether it's a tri-club or a federation, et cetera, one group may say, oh, we need the crescendo. Other groups may say, no, we've had some things that have been so egregious that we need to start with anti-racism and then build the house. It just may require us to be flexible around that, um, mm. but there's two there's two sides to that coin that aren't agreed upon based on what I've read and, and learned. That's interesting because yeah. I, I you made me just think about diversity, equity, and inclusion is both a subject and a process, right? And so with Absolutely. anti-racism, it feels like it's a both end so that those two positions that you just described are not necessarily in conflict with each other, right? Because 
You could build an educational framework that is rooted in anti-racism concepts, but it begins with definitions, right? Mm -hmm. And history Mm -hmm. or whatever. Yeah. Versus kind of thinking that we're going to have five steps and the final step is going to be a session on anti-racism. Right, 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 right. Mm -hmm. Like anti-racism feels like it's more than a thing. I don't know. Does that make Mm. sense? Oh, it makes absolute sense because, you know, what it reminds me of is, you know, some people feel like, so let's say we're talking about building a house and anti-racism is the final room on the house versus anti-racism is the entire fence to the house. And we're starting to build the house within the fence so that yet, and, and both of them can work, you know, both of them can be functional houses. So I I think you've got a point that they aren't mutually exclusive. Um, But now here's my next question, Lisa, because how do you feel about the folks that they want anti-racism or at least they're calling for that work um, and yet they're looking for some type of peace involved with like the end result, like the outcome of it. And so, you know, and, and the reason why I'm bringing that up is because some of the uh, DEI versus anti-racism work that I've been reading on, uh, Sean Harper, which I just adore, he's out there at USC uh, running the Race and Equity Center. Um, he mentioned how the end result of anti-racism work is not going to be a kumbaya moment because uh-huh. it's inherently in conflict to lived experience, right? Right. Now, right. I, I get the inherently in conflict. I get the, it's not passive, it is active. But I do think he's hitting the nail on the head in regards to what this kumbaya moment can, should look like. I, I just thought it was an interesting phrase for him to use as someone who's the, a race scholar. And Sean, I adore you. I hope you're listening to this podcast right now. <laughs> I think it's interesting. I think it's an interesting statement because I think it's true and it's questionable at the same time. Yeah, I definitely see anti-racism, the construct of it, as a much more radical transformational um, approach than diversity, Mm -hmm. equity, and inclusion. And that could also just Mm. be that DEI has become so common in our language that it's lost some of its power, which Mm. I think is definitely true with diversity, but kind of that DEI. um, And so I do agree with you, right? But tell me why it's, uh, it's interesting to you that he used kumbaya right because when I think of kumbaya I do think of peace and getting along and I think about it also in the context of white people often deriding diversity equity and inclusion initiatives that they just don't have time for this kumbaya shit (laughs) that's kind of how I think about it (laughs) right 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 well you know my my brain kind of exploded when I read that statement by Dr. Harper because it, it reminds me of so my kids right now, they're doing units on synonyms, antonyms, and homonyms. So of course, synonyms that are words that mean the same thing, antonyms, two words that mean the opposite of one another, but then the homonym piece of a word that may have the same spelling or pronunciation, but they mean two different things. And I kind of feel that way when it comes down to Dr. Harper's mention of the kumbaya moment, because Kumbaya, to me, it depends on who you're asking. You know, if I'm asking someone who is serious about anti-racism and DEI for that matter, then 
kumbaya is not a, oh, let's all just get along for the sake of performance. It is digging in, being candid, doing the daily work, doing the the work that's uncomfortable mm-hmm. in order to get to mm-hmm. a place of mm-hmm. peacefulness. Right. Whereas kumbaya could be like when I was a little kid in Sunday school where we all, you know, held hands and, and literally sung the song together in a peaceful moment. Those are two different things. You have some folks who want to perform peace and other folks that want to truly create this peace. So to me, I've always, um, one of my seminary professors talked all the time when it came to uh, mission work and so forth in, uh, in conflict, was that there's a huge difference between peacekeeping and peacemaking, right? So keeping peace is, all right, we're not going to say nothing about nothing. That, Lisa, that's like going to your family who you disagree with, going to Thanksgiving with your family, and you know you have radical stances um, that don't agree with each other on particular topics. So we're going to keep the peace, eat your food, smile, take the pictures and go home, right? That's peacekeeping. Peacemaking is you just going to have to choke on this stuffing and, and turkey today because we're going to have this conversation. And my hope is that we get to a place of understanding, not even agreement, understanding so that we can peacefully understand each other and move forward together. Ain't nobody interested in peacemaking, Lisa. Most people are interested in the peacekeeping because that's more comfortable. And so that type of kumbaya is comfortable. Peacemaking is extremely uncomfortable, uncomfortable for long periods of time. You don't know how long it's going to take for you to get to the end result, if ever. So I just think that kumbaya phrase was so interesting that Dr. Mm -hmm. Harper used it because I, I went like five levels down on that one word in his phrase. So that that's what I heard as soon as I read it in my brain, it just, the neurons started to explode. Forgive me y'all. It just started to explode. Well, and I'm thinking it's completely now detached from its historical origin. Right. Um, and I certainly yeah. didn't, yeah. I certainly was not taught about its roots in, um, African-American enslavement and the underground railroad, um, growing mm. up in Britain, mm-hmm. singing that song in, school assembly and stuff I mean I don't think I even knew it meant yeah yeah what does it come here come by here come here now mm-hmm, yeah mm-hmm, yep, um yep. so it yeah. does it does feel like it's become yes you're it's shifted from perhaps in the maybe the 60s and the 70s when it was perhaps more readily understood in terms of its historical context as peacemaking and now it's shifted mm-hmm. more to the peacekeeping and uh we found this article on NPR and one of, and the author says something, uh, quotes basically, Kumbaya along with the unity it represents began to be mocked, especially by political figures and the people who cover them. The song oh, became wow. a sneering shorthand for blissful agreement. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and see, that's where Mahamanim comes in, Lisa, on the Kumbaya, right. because it's like, you know, that wasn't its intention. I mean, you know, my my understanding and my experience of understanding the language of Kumbaya is obviously rooted in African-American, African ancestors who used this phrase. Um, so in a theological perspective, so uh, follow us people. We just went from race and now we're going over into theology and so forth. But, you know, part of it was around the kumbaya of singing that song. So instead of singing that in in a school assembly, Lisa, that would be sung 
during a tent revival of uh, hopefully freed African descendants, mm-hmm. uh, a tent revival because we did not own our own churches. Uh, so obviously we had to have church services outside under a tent, hopefully, where it was cool and shaded. Um, and so singing that, sh- that song, Kumbaya, was a spiritual conversation with God, come by here, my Lord, is actually the phrase or the, the lyric to the song. And so that spiritual interaction with the Lord coming by to check on us, but also part of the underground railroad system. If someone who was escaping or uh, leaving uh, from their master's uh, uh, land or territory and trying to get to a place of safety, if they heard the song Kumbaya, that meant, okay, I'm getting closer. I'm getting closer to safety. Well, look, I guarantee you, White folks that bring up Kumbaya have no clue of this information, have no understanding as to the the deeper understanding of peace um, and civility. And so it's kind of a double-edged sword here, Lisa, because we we want to get to the place of Kumbaya. However, it's the assumption that people really know what we mean. Kumbaya to... I would suggest to anyone listening to this podcast, you probably know our personalities by now. Kumbaya is not about everybody playing nicely. It ain't. It, it's just not. It, it is a future end result, but we're going to have to get real messy before we get there. And, you know, I, I think you're right. It's become this flippant phrase of, all right, let's just get this over with. All right, I'll go to the one hour DEI training and then right. we're going to play nicely. No, I'm not interested in that. Yeah. And I think, you know, so maybe this is part of that distinction between DEI broadly and anti-racism is that, the yeah, the DEI broadly, the um, definitions, mm. the how to be respectful of people who are different from you is more kumbaya in the kind of kind of white collective imagination, right, that's kind of divisive mm. and a little mm-hmm. bit flat and um, superficial and then anti-racism yeah, yeah. is perhaps more the kumbaya in that historical context of freedom and safety um against a yeah. brutal system of oppression mm-hmm. absolutely absolutely well and even when it comes to you know the kumbaya kind of flies in the face of civility and what does civility look like because there's a lot of folks that don't like the use of the word civility because that kind of yep. flirts with understandings of tone policing and oh, yeah. I don't even like demeanor. Yeah. yeah. I don't care for it either. Right. Even though there's a whole body of literature around civility, I don't like it at all because it makes it seem as if they're in order for a, uh, in order for a sentiment to be taken seriously, it has to be delivered a certain way. And I'm like, no, I'm not interested in that either. (laughs) Whether I'm whispering the message or shouting it from the rooftops, the content is still the same and valuable. And so there are people who have been constantly, I'm going to use policed loosely, policed in order to deliver in a certain method. And that is not the method. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I'm just having some little popcorn um, Mm -hmm. connections going off in my head here, which are probably stupidly late in coming to these and are a product of my whiteness almost certainly so I'm thinking of civility I remember um you know I was at the social justice training institute and we had to develop 
um, community agreements or ground rules. And my group, I think, was all yes. white. That may have been on purpose that we were all white. I can't remember. And anyway, one of the ground rules we came up with was civility. Um, and mm-hmm. then Jamie Washington, who, if folks don't know who Jamie Washington is, yes. um, fantastic. You should look him up. He is a great mm-hmm. speaker to bring into your organization. Um, mm-hmm. You know, basically pointed out that civility essentially is kind of a, a white um, construct around how to behave. Yeah. And so, um, yes, 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 yes. Indirect. It's used to hold communities of color accountable for these standards, right? That are um, presumed to be correct and appropriate. Anyway, so now I'm thinking, okay, like, so we're recording this uh, shortly before. Uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Day, and I'm thinking about civil disobedience, right? Yes, and so yes, yes, yes. I'm thinking about the the need or the desire to be civilly disobedient is simply pandering to white society, right? So absolutely, yeah. So absolutely. like, and and the mm-hmm. word, even the word, is absolutely specifically chosen, right? to be um to speak white supremacy like strategically control control right trying to control us absolutely absolutely well you know (laughs) lisa what this reminds me of i cannot stop laughing when i think about this visual of now most people know if you know me personally i'm an only child and so even with sons obviously who are siblings understanding how they communicate and fight and all of that is very interesting to me. And when I think about this whole kumbaya moment, it just reminds me of forcing civility onto two people (laughs) where we would prefer for them to make Mm -hmm. peace, but for, for us tired parents and, and, you know, we just want to find some peace we want to manufacture peace. And so I remember this meme a while ago, Lisa, where it was, it was the funniest thing because it was one shirt that both siblings had to wear. And I thought it was the funniest thing ever because it was just manufactured to keep peace um, when it really wasn't making peace at all. And so the two siblings that are inside of this shirt are like, you know, they're crying, they're upset, all of these things. And, you know, it, I'm just like, no, we're not going to force people into this get along sweater, you know, this get along shirt where we're just forcing people to act as if they're getting along when they're really not. So therefore we're, we're doing the performative form of Kumbaya and not the actual form of Kumbaya. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not doing it. I'm, I'm busting out of that sweatshirt. I'm, I'm, but I'm busting out of it because I'm not interested in the fake get along sweatshirt. I'm just not. But I think right. we do that in organizations like daily. <laughs> yeah, we try and pull everyone under the one sweatshirt with a big enough neck hole, right? That can fit everyone through. <laughs> right, right. And you're going to wear it until you act right. And it's like, okay, yeah. are we acting or are we actually mm. being right. right to other people? Um, yeah. So then do you think, so if you're an organization and you're looking to continue this educational journey and you're focus is how can we have a one hour or two hour training or educational opportunity for employees or members um, so that they understand people's different experiences and are more respectful of each other. Do you feel like that is the why can't we get along t-shirt? 
absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. It's it, it's the why can't we get along t-shirt. It's the, you know, it, it truly is a, it, it's almost like corporate performance. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, we're, we are current that we're just not dealing with and we have no intention of dealing with it. That to me, that's scarier because no one wants to get to the root. Okay. So then as a, um, as a person, you know, maybe you're the board of the director, the chairperson of the board of directors, maybe you're the club president or you're in some other leadership role and you're thinking to yourself, this is, you know, we should do some education around this. And then you start going down that get along respectful avenue that should be the indicator to you that you're perhaps not moving in a transformational direction and you're moving more in that kind of blissful agreement kumbaya yes 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 yes, direction okay yeah well and and lisa to to your point i'm wondering if you know again it's the how can we perform because we're not invested in the the creation of that piece? So blissful ignorance, peace, all of that, you know, I just wonder because that that's the path of least resistance, right? Let's perform as if everything right, is okay when right. it's really not. And and my bigger challenge with the uh kumbaya perf- uh peace keeping is that it always comes at a detriment to people in your organization. It always comes at a cost. Mm -hmm. Somebody has to pay for that. And it's usually people of color, women, LGBT folks, non-binary folks, people with disabilities, they're the ones who pay. And so even as, and, you know, I think we should qualify the, the, the blissful peace. Only certain people get to enjoy that blissful peace, even when it's feigned. Right. And usually they're not us, Lisa. They're just not. So, you know, mm-hmm. given that, I think, you know, the, how can I say, the the peace keeping comes at a cost that still doesn't get you closer to anti-racism or DEI outcomes, right? The peacemaking still comes at a price, but you're getting closer to what you really want. Right. And right. so for me, I'm, which I'm, I'm still getting even more and more, more well-versed on this, Lisa, is that I've been doing more, more reading and thinking about how anti-racism still is to the benefit of white people if they would choose to engage. And mm. here is how it benefits all of us. All right. Okay. Um, and so, you know, for me, that's what I think is interesting is that, you know, it's almost like, you know how you go on, um, I don't know if it's PayPal or what have you, because I've never used it, but I've seen it. But let's say you're going online and you're going to make a purchase for X amount of dollars. Well, you can either pay that up front, which may be a little more of a hardship, or they give you this little option where you can, okay, 15 bucks every week on this, this. And so it's parsed out over time. Which one is going to be the hardest hitter on your pocket? Which one is going to be the hardest on your time, on your energy? Some people keep kicking it down the road and saying, I'm going to pay later. I'm going to pay later. I'm going to pay later. I would suggest oppressed groups are saying, we want to pay now because we want to get to this end result. And we want everyone on board as we get to it versus other folks are saying, okay, I'm just going to delay these payments. I'm just going to keep deferring, keep deferring and hope that I can ignore it and never pay. 
and you end up paying more. Like how many times have we seen Lisa, an organization that kept kicking it down the road and they ended up paying dearly for it later. Sometimes the organization yeah. folded entirely yep. leadership left. We now are, are seeing this, um, uh, human resources tsunami where people are leaving and they're wondering what's up with the workforce. You're going to pay, you're going to pay. So it's a matter of whether you want to pay for your kumbaya now over time or later where it has a whole lot of interest on it. I don't know, but someone's going to have to pay for that. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. I I just feel like people of color, women, all of our oppressed groups end up paying so dearly. Yeah. Yeah. So do you feel like we answered the, how do you tell the difference between DEI education and anti-racism, racism education? Oh, well, here's the thing. I don't think, I don't think we gave a definitive difference because I don't think there is a definitive difference. I think it's, I think it's two approaches that can work. It's just a matter of where you want to start. So I I think our, our big, our big point about Kumbaya peacekeeping or peacemaking, I think we got that, but I think neither one is wrong. You know, if you want to start with DEI and move into anti-racism, obviously that can work. If you want to build a framework of anti-racism and do all of your work within it. You can do that. It's up to you. I, I guess what your, uh, what your organization, what your club, what your federation can, um, w- which approach works best for them, you know, so, because we know this is not cookie cutter. If nothing else, y'all know right. that, you know, one approach can't work for everyone, but I, I think we've at least given folks a menu of starting points as to, do you want to start with DEI? Do you want to start with anti-racism? Mm -hmm. And where is that going to get you? Yeah. Okay. So with that fabulous um, summation of what we just talked about, let's move on to our hell yeah, hell no segment. Hell yeah. Hell no. Oh, so Lisa, I have uh, been ramping up for the Winter Olympics, which I believe starts on February 3rd. Uh, when it comes to some of the um, highlights and so forth, I've been watching a few channels and the um, the actual qualifications. But tell me what's going on that we have the the first non-binary athlete competing in the Winter Olympics. How cool is that? Yeah, it seems like it. They are an ice skater, mm. I believe. A doubles <gasps> ice skater. I'm not sure if they're uh-huh. doing any single um, ice skating too, but... Uh, gotcha. Um, mm-hmm. Pretty... Well... <laughs> The Olympics um, and their gender (laughs) regulations, Mm -hmm. rules, however you want to frame it, I don't think are very progressive. So I was pretty shocked to read that piece that you sent to me. Um, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. This individual is able to be uh, out and um, categorized, uh, you know, with the gender identity that is most um, resonant with them. And just think about the message that that is going to send to all of those young people who are struggling with their gender identity and wondering about the binary and why don't they fit, right? And that what does that mean for them? And then they're going to see this person compete in the Winter Olympics. Um, Right. I mean, I think that that is pretty powerful and amazing. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, you know, I'm always thinking about young people when it comes to this and what that symbolizes for the possibilities for them. But I think you're right. It's it kind of feels like the and and this is not to say that everyone can be an Olympian or everyone can do what has been done. But, you know, the proverbial bar 
for representation is so low when it comes to this, that this person just existing happens to be wonderful. Um, but it's, it's symbolic, you know, and I, I'm kind of shocked, Lisa, when I kind of cursory looked at the story, I was kind of shocked too. I was like, wait a minute, what? First, first that, you know, first that we know of, or first against a backdrop of ignorance and other things. Right, I just right. thought it was really interesting just against that backdrop. Yeah. Yeah. So we'll drop the a uh, couple of links into the show notes so that you can follow up on that piece. So that's a big hell yeah. And then what about a hell no? What what have we got this week, Shauna? Oh, girl. Look, you you know it does <laughs> not take me much to get fired up on some foolishness. Okay, foolishness. Oh, so I read this, y'all, and I had to just walk away from my computer when I read this. So. This particular story posted uh, just a couple of days ago on CNN in the uh, in the beauty category, actually, um, where parents were outraged after the school that their uh, child attends suggested shapewear to tackle body image issues in middle school girls. Now, shapewear, you know, if we think about this more broadly, you know, some of this is defined like things like Spanx, for example, or maybe it's a particular type of bra or whatever, um, what my my other girlfriend, Lisa, and I call a good foundation, whatever you want to wear to make sure that your clothing looks the way you would like for it to look, can sometimes be considered shapewear. And what I found interesting was that so in Mississippi, <laughs> um, there is a middle school that they were trying to address some body image concerns. And so a parent was really angry when her 13-year-old daughter brought the letter home. And the title of the letter was, Why Do Girls Suffer? from body image. And so it goes on, the letter goes on talking about different body issues among females. Females, females, let me underline, highlight that, put that in blinking lights body image issues among females at the bottom. And it offered parents the option to consent to their daughters receiving quote unquote healthy literature and also consenting to their daughters receiving shapewear clothing items. Oh. I'm like, look, I'm like, what fresh hell is this? Okay. This is foolishness. And so when I looked at the, um, you know, at the letter that was sent home, it's, you know, it, it reminds you of one of those um, consent forms, like when you go on a field trip or something. And at the bottom of it, it says, and you can check, yes, my daughter may receive healthy literature, shapewear, bras, and other products given by the counselors of XYZ Middle School. She will need the following sizes. And it asked them to even select the sizes, Lisa. So small up to uh, 3X, shapewear bottoms small up to 3X. Uh, it asked for bra size in particular. And then underneath, just a one-liner. See, I want to put hell no on that part. The one-liner the other option is no, my daughter may not receive the healthy literature, shapewear, bras, and other products given by the counselors of South Haven Middle School. And then the parent signs and dates. What in the hell, Lisa? What? Oh, my goodness. Who, who, who thought of this? You know, what's most terrifying for me is that these are school counselors. So these are people that have theoretically had training in child yes. psychology. And you're like, well, okay, so you are you are 
a bigger young person. So why don't you wear shapewear to hold it all in? And that will fix your body image issues versus the fact that you're even effing offering effing Girl, shapewear. I'm hot. I'm hot. a product of the problem. I'm <laughs> oh, sorry. I'm shouting because I'm also you're annoying. You're creating <laughs> the problem you're trying to fix. Yes. Oh Yikes. my goodness. I, I'm just like, what in the world? And so the parents, as you get into the article a little bit more, and we're going to uh, post it in the show notes, but the parents were, you know, yes, obviously they were irate. I would have been too. Um, but they're also noticing how the whole story is going viral. So hopefully this can start a conversation around body image. Now I have a son who struggles with body image. And so as I'm thinking about the multiple layers of this, the gender layers of this, the even the sizing layers of this, what does this look like when once again, we are victimizing the individuals, the students, rather than looking at the system that says there needs to be a body shaper of any sort. I, I am just, I'm, I'm glad that wasn't, uh, if they had come home to this house. Oh my. Yeah. Yeah, I love it because the, the mom who, um, is featured in the article, Um, Mm -hmm. She's quoted as saying, I had to reread it a few times. And then my first instinct was to go up to the school and yell at every person I could find. And I was like, that probably would have been my instinct too. Look, look, our listeners, look, Lisa, you call me or I call you. We'll just both be at the school, period. We just at the school. Oh my gosh. Yes. I'm like, what the hell? No, there, no way, no way. So Oh, you know, I, I think it's so many levels of this that, you know, I'm really trying to understand how this is okay by educators in this country, child psychologists. Uh, you know, they even mentioned, um, the, the mom even mentioned that um, she, she said, quote, if my daughter begged me for shapewear, I would tell her no. Now I find out that you're encouraging her to wear it. I honestly am baffled that a quote unquote counselor who is trained in child psychology would actually think this is a good idea. Incredible. And so, you know, for me, I'm thinking to myself now, now I'm going into my educator point of view. I've transitioned from being the mad parent. Well, I'm still mad, but from the mad parent to now the educator of now I got to look at what's in child psychology in that coursework, in that training for our child psychologists that are in every school that allowed them to skip over why the, this, why this is problematic. Like, what did you miss out on? Did you miss a class? Did you miss a day? What'd you miss? Because this must not be in the curriculum. And that's a deeper-rooted yeah. problem. Yeah, yeah. You got to trace it all the way back, right? Because it was, oh, wasn't oh. a single counselor. My understanding was it was the counselor's plural at the school thought this was everyone however many that is but definitely more than one it seems exactly so anyway yeah i'm hot i'm still hot for this mom i am so hot for this mom that was uh (laughs) noted here yep yep i am hot look i might be writing another letter lisa because i am hot about this but you know this helps us to think once again lisa about you know process and outcomes. Right. Right. <laughs> it's not as simple as we think. No. Um, I would not suggest offering this to any child. Uh, this is so frustrating to me, but yeah, this was a, this was a absolutely hell nah 
um, for this week. I, look, this is enough for like three weeks for me because my blood yeah. pressure is really high I, I, right now. Yeah, I feel like this was a big one. <laughs> big one for sure. Absolutely. Yep. So, yeah. So we stand in solidarity with you, mom and daughter. You did the right thing. I, I would have been amused by you going up to the school to yell and would have encouraged doing so because I would have done that. So there yeah. you have it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> The Unfazed Podcast and all things Feisty Triathlon are grateful to be supported by Inside Tracker. Inside Tracker cuts through the noise of diet and wellness trends by analyzing your blood, DNA, and lifestyle to provide you a personalized, science-backed, trackable action plan on how to live, age, and perform better. Inside Tracker is a simpler, cheaper, and more convenient option than traditional blood tests, and their test includes biomarkers that are key to performance that you don't get from the traditional option. What we love about them, they don't just give you data, they provide you with nutrition and lifestyle tips to take action. Inside Tracker is offering 25% off their entire store to the Feisty Triathlon community. To claim your offer, go to insidetracker.com slash feisty triathlon. Unfazed, a podcast produced by Live Feisty Media and supported by the Outspoken Women in Triathlon Summit. Edited and produced by the fabulous Lindsay Glassford. Email us at info at unfazedpodcast.com and find us on social at try to defy at Dr. Gold Speaks or at Outspoken Women in Try. I'm Lisa. I'm Shauna. Thanks for listening. Stay unfazed, folks. See you next time. Mm-hmm.